0: Welcome to Displaced. I'm Ravi Guramurthy. And I am Grant Gordon. And this is the podcast that you should listen to if you care about humanitarian crises and how to stop them. Uh, before we head into today's episode, we just wanted to let you know that we would love to hear from you. Drop us a note at displaced at rescue.org. tweet at us with hashtag displaced podcast and leave a review of
1: the show. To introduce today's topic, I want to start by drowning you with some figures. calm down, Grant, calm down. Um, In Syria, the cause of the largest displacement crisis today, 13.5 million people are inside Syria, of which 6.3 million are internally displaced. A smaller number, 5.2 million Syrians, have fled across the border to neighbouring countries and are refugees. You might think that when allocating aid, donors and the UN might assess need and then allocate it to where the populations need it most. And based on that, you might assume that those who are displaced internally might have similar needs and therefore receive similar resources to those who fled as refugees over the border. But in fact, refugees receive far more aid. The UN Consolidated Appeal for 2017 sought $3.4 billion to support an estimated 13.5 million people inside Syria. However, the UNHCR-led Refugee Response Plan sought $5.6 billion, nearly two-thirds more, for the 5.2 million Syrian refugees around the region, a population nearly two-thirds smaller. And one of the root causes of this seemingly unfair allocation of resources is down to the way the donors and the UN systems structure the whole operation, and what our guest today, Jeremy Conondyte, calls the humanitarian business model.
0: I think it's worth unpacking that for a second because I think it almost does injustice to it. The humanitarian business model, if I were to take it and and look at it a different way, is actually an attempt to step back and think about the political economy and the way that the system has been structured in humanitarian response. It's the way, it's the rules of the game, it's the players, it's the incentives that they have, and that has huge downstream impacts on programming. In In a way, I actually think it's like, It's the policy part of the system, whereas when people think about humanitarian response, they think about the programs, and it's really important to understand the policy.
1: And it has massive effects on actually what happens on the ground. So if you take the Ebola crisis, the World Health Organization resisted characterizing it as a humanitarian crisis rather than a public health emergency because it knew that leadership of that would then shift away from their remit. And as a result, that prevented earlier engagement by other UN actors, despite the WHO's own well-documented limitations in managing the crisis. And
0: that's because there are bureaucratic incentives that are structured such that when you call a pandemic, a pandemic or a health emergency, funding flows different ways because of some of those initial starting positions and structural incentives. And you get really different responses as a result of that.
1: So in this podcast, we talk to Jeremy about the vested interests inherent in the way the system is designed. And we talk about three solutions to the problem. Ones that probably sound quite simple and obvious, but are pretty difficult to get to and complicated to implement. One is pooling all the funds from agencies at a country level. Then secondly, allocating them based on an impartial needs assessment. And then thirdly, prioritizing cash transfers Over other service provision.
0: Jeremy's got a fascinating vantage point on this topic. Uh, From 2013 to 2017, he served as the director of USAID's Office of US Foreign Disaster Assistance, where he essentially oversaw the US government's entire response to international disasters, which essentially includes a response to an average of 70 disasters in 50 countries every year. So he has a unique vantage point. Uh, He also, during his tenure, led the U.S. government response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And after talking about the humanitarian business model, we dive into some of the deeper lessons from the Ebola crisis.
2: My name is Jeremy Kneindike. I'm a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. And I'm also the former director of foreign disaster assistance for the Obama administration.
0: And as a way to start us off, you are not only that, I hear you are a master baker. I I bake some very good bread. So we went on Twitter in advance of this and said, (laughs) what questions would you like Jeremy to answer? And the first and most resoundingly popular one was, (laughs) how does he make a sourdough? (laughs) It's true. Yeah. um, I started
2: baking when I was still at OFDA because I inherited some sourdough starter from a friend of mine who was moving overseas and couldn't legally take it with him where he was going. And I, I got really into it. It's very addictive. It's very therapeutic. I found it a very, just a very nice little hobby to have on the side, um, a nice counterpoint to the stresses of the job that I was doing at the time.
1: So, we want to start with a paper you've actually written recently that talks about the humanitarian business model. Hmm. And it really involves a pretty extensive critique of how the current humanitarian system operates. Can you just actually? Explain the term humanitarian business model and Mm. actually what does the system uh, look like in in brief terms. Right. So the the humanitarian business
2: model, as I talk about in this paper, is intended to capture the idea that the choices that donors make about how to give their money and to whom to give their money and through what channels to give their money is not in and of itself a neutral thing. And so it's not as if there is some inherently correct and neutral way to give humanitarian assistance. The choices of how different donors approach their giving creates different incentives for the agencies that are receiving that money. And that in turn translates to outcomes at the delivery level in the in the field. And so what I talk about in the paper is the model that we have today predominantly evolved to serve the interests of the largest UN aid agencies and the donors. That doesn't mean it's inherently bad, but I think it's important to recognize that this is not necessarily an inherent reflection of the only way and the absolute right way things can be. It's it's a choice that donors are making and aid agencies are making about how to structure the financial incentives that guide the humanitarian system. And that's not the only incentives that matter, but they're pretty important
0: and we don't talk about them very often. Okay. So let's unpack that a bit because that's huge. I think it gets it. One of the fundamental ways that it's really important to think about the humanitarian humanitarian yeah. assistance and the humanitarian enterprise. I yeah. think people think about what happens when frontline workers are saving lives yeah. um, in yeah. countries that are affected by crises or yeah. conflict, which is really crucial. But whether they're there... Who they're there with, yeah. what they're providing is all a function of the structural incentives Absolutely. that ultimately pass that money down. Absolutely. What are the core yeah. structural incentives that you think have come to dominate the humanitarian enterprise that you think are relevant for people to understand? So I think you need to look at what are the
2: kind of competing structures that we use to guide and orient humanitarian assistance, and I think there are. I think there are several. So you've got one set of structures that are reflected by the predominant agencies. So that is um, the the big three that I mentioned, particularly in the paper, UNICEF, UNHCR, and WFP, all of whom I want to say here are really excellent organizations with uh, many excellent people who do excellent work. I don't want to give the impression that they're somehow being nefarious. And I go out of my way to say that in the paper. This is not agencies being nefarious, this is, in in a sense, it's bureaucracies pursuing their interests, right? Which every bureaucracy does. And we don't like to think about the humanitarian system in those terms, but I I think it's helpful too. So you've got these large agencies that all date back to the middle of the 20th century that largely evolved to deal with the problems of that time period. So if you divide the world up into kids programs, UNICEF, food programs, WFP, refugee programs, and protection programs, UNHCR... Development programs, women's programs, that both introduces a huge amount of overlap and it leaves a lot of gaps. Uh, in the early 90s, there was one round of reforms that created some structures to coordinate amongst those. Previously, they were totally kingdoms unto themselves. The Indian Ocean tsunami was a rea- and, and the, the Kashmir earthquake were both I think were watershed moments for, for recognizing that you know, those coordination investments had not had not delivered. And there was still a huge amount of duplication. There were still significant inefficiencies. And at the core of it, what have we constructed them to do? So if you're the World Food Program, and I don't mean to pick on WFP because this isn't unique to them, but if you're the World Food Program that traditionally you viewed your role as providing food, and so you would go out and you would say, what are the food needs? Okay, here are the food needs. Here's the price tag for the food needs, and we're going to deliver against the food needs. So how each agency defined what it was going to do would shape how it would assess needs. And that means it bakes in a lot of blind spots to how we look at need. And it doesn't start from the individual. It doesn't start from a holistic person. And then that can lead you to some strange outcomes. I saw this firsthand at various points in my career. Um, One that has really stuck with me is when I worked in Northern Uganda for the American Refugee Committee. We were running programs for South Sudanese refugees in one part of northern Uganda, and we were running programs for displaced Ugandans in another part of northern Uganda. And the level of funding we could get for those two programs was wildly different. The level of quality of services we were able to provide to those two populations was wildly different, not based on their level of need, but based on where the donors were prioritizing the funding and who had a voice for them and who didn't. And so if you're a refugee, you have an agency that is dedicated to your welfare. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, if you're a refugee, it's a very good thing because it means that you have a dedicated advocate for your own needs. If you're an internally displaced person in IDP, you don't have that. And it's not a coincidence that the level of aid, I should say, a level of support that you receive is, is very, very different. And can just, see just, it, just
1: to understand that, that yeah. is because Right at the global level, the money might have been carved up so that the refugee agency gets a lot absolutely. of money, but those agencies that supply money to uh, internally displaced people don't. So That's right. the f- A function of that global divvying up right. means that two people, uh, one with similar needs, may have very you know half or a third of of the need uh, of the support of the other.
2: That's absolutely right. Um, and you see that within the U.S. government. You see that in how the U.S. government allocates money. So Congress pre-divides the money between refugee aid, food aid, and everything else. So I managed the everything else budget. My counterpart who ran the Refugee Bureau at the State Department ran the refugee budget. The everything else budget. (laughs) In effect. effect. (laughs) Um, And so traditionally, and this is shifting in the last couple of years, this has begun shifting a bit. But traditionally, the the refugee budget would get as much as, if not more than, the food aid budget and the non-refugee budget put together. Even though um, IDPs have long outnumbered refugees in terms of total total population and need, that's not a needs-based decision that anyone's making. That is Congress saying we're going to appropriate this money, um, and so right you know right from the top, the U.S. government is not starting from a needs-based determination of resource priorities. It's starting from a turf-based priori- prioritization of resources, and you see the same within the UN system.
1: And how did this all come about? Because from first principles, it seems mad to have a set of categories that are overlapping. You you could organize the world in sectors like education, health, uh, economic well-being, but to have something that's partly client group based, Mm -hmm. like refugee, Mm -hmm. partly, um, you know,
0: (laughs) food, water sanitation.
1: (laughs) The the overlap is is, is bizarrely structured. Is that just because of the organic evolution of, of mandates?
2: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, each of these agencies were set up to do a particular thing at a particular point in time, and then, as all institutions do, they evolved, and they evolved to de- to develop enormous capacity. I mean, uh, you know UNHCR has tremendous capacity to do the things it has evolved to do. Um, I think the question is, when you look collectively at that configuration of agencies and the things they have evolved to do, how well does that match up to what we now need them to do? And that was where the the round of reform that kicked off in 2005 said, you know, this is not a rationalized structure for the way we see the world today. The way we see the world today is much more through uh, a more comprehensive set of you you have uh, food needs, you have health needs, you have water needs, you have protection needs, you have education needs, et cetera, et cetera. Those don't align at all with the way the agencies have been set up. So UNICEF covers water, they cover health, and the way that this then manifests is you go to, say, an IDP camp in in Northern Nigeria, as I did last spring, and you look at who's providing health support. So you have a UNICEF clinic that provides health services to mothers and children. Literally next door to that, you have a physically separate structure that's run by UNFPA that provides gender-based violence services. Down the road from that, you have another health facility that provides general primary health care from an NGO. On the other side of the camp, you have a psychosocial support service. Now, all of these things are, broadly speaking, health-related. They're all run individually, physically distinct by different agencies that are responding to different incentives from different donors. And if you're an IDP living in that camp, you need – okay, so if I have – this disease and I'm this type of person, I need to go to this clinic, but if I'm malnourished, I need to go here. It's not setting up service provision based on the presumption of the whole individual. It is segmenting the individual's needs to meet the bureaucratic structure that we've set up at a global level. One of the
1: most most striking examples that we're dealing with at the moment is actually the division between severe acute malnutrition Mm. and moderate acute malnutrition. Mm. And one is run by the WFP. Mm. One is run by UNICEF. They have different protocols, Mm. different products. Mm. And it's ludicrous because if you're moderately uh, malnourished, you might then become severely malnourished, but you have to go to totally different providers. Yeah. But the only my only caveat on this is you know, it seems wildly uncoordinated, inefficient, crazy. Is there any argument, however, that this does inject a certain degree of competition, choice, variety?
0: Let me pull that out more because this was it's one of the things I actually grapple with, and i and mm. i I find in conversations in the humanitarian sector tends there tends to be like a schizophrenic debate around this. On one hand, we want well-run, coordinated, efficient, bureaucratic social service delivery. Right. And to do that, you don't want 15 different health providers. You want one who knows right. what they're doing. And on the other side of that coin though is that well when you actually just have one monopoly service provider that then gets lazy. It gets inefficient. Mm-hmm. There are less accountability that's just generated by competitive pressures. And so maybe you actually want a few providers. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about those two sides of the argument when you're thinking about the
2: sector? I think that's a great, that's a great observation. It's something I, I, I touch on a bit in the paper. There is competition right now. And I think competition can be a healthy thing. Uh, you see, you see a, a great deal of competition in the NGO sector where I've spent most of my career. I, I think <laughs> We know. Yeah, as you know, <laughs> as IRC knows painfully and well. Um, and I think that's generally a healthy thing because what yeah. that means is that it means you're not locked into a single organization to provide us a, a particular kind of service, if IRC is doing a lousy job, which I'm sure never happens, um, you can turn to MSF, you can turn to IMC, you can. There are there are other alternatives, and so it forces any individual NGO to really stay on top of their game, and it also drives innovation because if you can go to uh, a donor with a better value proposition than one of your peer competitors/slash collaborators, that's that's better for the sector at large. If you look at that dynamic within the UN system, you don't really have that. Mm -hmm. First of all, resources are not being allocated based on comparative advantage on delivery or performance. They're being allocated based on importance of mandate. So the competition that you see within the UN system is about whose mandate is more important, Mm -hmm. not about who's in a better position to deliver against an objective set of needs. That's why you get a degree of turf battling in the UN system that, you know, at,
0: at times is really very unseemly. Can I ask a quick question on this that I, I think about with the World Humanitarian Summit that gets at like one of the crux of your insights, which is you have a system that is responding to structural incentives that's not designed well. And then you're just having that system come up with the new plan for how to make the system better. And so you're like, obviously not going to get a a dramatic reform. And the part that I grapple with, I think the part that's actually hard about this is like, well, who does this? Where does this originate? Right. Like, how do you actually create transformative change if you don't have the UN agencies at the table or if you don't have the NGOs at the table, if you don't have the actors in the sector at the table? So how do you think about the potential for these things and actually then who needs to be driving them? You really hit on one of the reasons why I.
2: I think the humani- the world humanitarian summit struggled to deliver more fundamental change, and that is there was not any sort of clear agreed blueprint for where we wanted to be going with that summit. You know, the the without getting into too much of the 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 gory history of the how that summit came to be, it started with the the sense that there um, from the secretary general that there ought to be a world humanitarian summit, and that was about where his guidance ended. Um, Ocha didn't really have a clear idea what to do with that, and they had a major leadership transition about a year before the summit hit. So there wasn't a good, um, you know, there was not a vision that was animating that summit.
1: And there was no political leadership, was there? From the donors, because ultimately it has to come from without the system.
2: I think they there, on the donor side, and and you know, I I was very um, actively involved in in the donor deliberations, prepping the summit, and I helped to uh, prepare Usaid's involvement in that summit. There was a lot of appetite to do something bolder, but no clear idea of what that should look like. And so, you know, I personally wanted to see something bolder. My boss, Gail Smith, wanted to see something bolder. We were getting a ton of pressure from the White House to go big, do something big. But no one had a really clear articulation of what would that look like. And and so that is the gap that I'm hoping to fill both with this paper and with some of my, my future research is... You know where what what is that blueprint for a more fundamental approach to humanitarian reform? What does it mean to go beyond trying to coordinate your way out of out of uh, out of a design problem and think about design, think about incentives, and who specifically needs to do what differently? To my mind, a huge part of that is the donors. I mean, the you know the agencies are you know the agencies can be criticized for um, for being poorly coordinated, for being turf oriented. They are also operating within a business model, that incentivizes them to do all those things, that puts it, makes it in their bureaucratic interest to behave in that way. And that's fundamentally about the donor's choices. And if you look over the past 15 years that we've been trying these reform initiatives, what has changed the least has been donor behavior.
1: But you said earlier that this whole system serves the interests of those UN agencies, but it also serves the interests of donors. Yeah. So what problem does the current system, if you like, solve for donors? Mm. One obvious one for me, uh, coming from government years ago, uh, there was a big pressure to cut admin costs. Yep. And by just passing off the money to the UN agencies, you don't have to have as much staff to, to think about how you spend that yourself. Yep. That's one example. But what, why else does this work for donors right now?
2: So that that is a huge part of it if you are a mid-sized european donor it is very difficult for you to justify a, su- a substantial amount of overhead to manage the money i remember very well i won't name who the donor was but a a planning session that we had with un representatives and geo representatives and donor representatives in the, in the run up to to the world humanitarian summit and some of the representatives of of local ngos global south ngos were saying Donors, you need to give us money directly. We don't want to receive it through the UN agencies. And one of the, the mid-sized donor reps said, look, I have an $800 million donor budget to administer. I have 20 people with whom to do it. I have to give that money out in huge chunks. Mm-hmm. And the only organizations that can absorb money in the size chunks that they can parcel out are UN agencies and some of the huge NGOs. If you are, if you are a, a small and up-and-coming NGO from the global south, uh, no donor is going to give you a fifty or hundred million dollar grant, or you know they're even going to struggle to give you a ten or twenty million dollar grant. Uh, I think one of the core things that the UN agency model has provided to the donors is the ability to relatively accountably manage large sums of money mm-hmm. and and take that burden off of the donors, and and that's and that's in the that's in the interest of the donors. It also has substantive advantages. It it, it allows you to build specialized technical capacity in global multilateral agencies that you could not build or wouldn't want to build at an individual donor by donor level. You wouldn't want 15 donors that all assert global expertise on refugee protection. It's much better to have that centered in one co-owned multilateral agency. What I think is interesting and what I try to point towards in some of my research on this is, is there a way that you could disentangle those two things? Does the money pooling function inherently have to go along with the technical and normative expertise that these agencies provide? And I, I argue it does not. I think that you could disentangle those two. You do want a global agency that has a world-beating expertise on refugee protection. You do want a global agency that has world-beating expertise on uh, food security. It doesn't necessarily follow that that should mean they control the vast majority of the programming resources in those sectors or that they serve as a funding pass through in addition to their technical expertise.
0: We're gonna now hop into solutions as you you, uh, just laid out. And the paper talks about, I think three that we're gonna dive into, pooled funds, Mm -hmm. impartial needs assessment and cash. And if I understand what you're saying there, that what you wanna do is actually bring in impartial needs assessment so that essentially the people who are providing you guidance on what you should do, aren't they the people collecting the money on yeah. that guidance? That's the, that's the fundamental right. insight. Can you take us through impartial needs assessments? A
2: yeah. Bit the way that a humanitarian response plan comes together is you have a lead UN agency that has a particular mandate and then chairs what's called a coordination cluster that is aligned in some sometimes tenuous way with that mandate. So if, that's, if you're UNICEF, you chair the water sanitation cluster. You are then going to go out. Your you know your teams are going to look for the water, sanitation, and hygiene needs. Work with the NGOs, some of whom, many of whom, are going to rely on you as UNICEF for their funding. So don't have an incentive to push you too hard. You'll put together a strategic plan and a, and a funding appeal that goes with it. The majority of which would route money towards UNICEF. The quality of the implementation in that sector will then be assessed by this body that UNICEF chairs uh, matched to technical standards that UNICEF elaborates. I don't think that UNICEF or any UN agency is going out of its way To corrupt any piece of that. I I, I legitimately don't believe that's the case, but I do think that those sorts of bureaucratic incentives matter to organizational behavior. In governance, for example, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches are all separate because you want them to serve as checks and balances on each other. In the way that we do things within the humanitarian system at a macro level, we do not have those those checks and balances. So you have, in effect, individual agencies are the, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches for the areas within their technical competency. And that that aligns incentives in a way that I think creates a lot of problems.
1: So how would it work in practice if you did have this uh, different model? Mm.
2: So in in practice, you would want to separate, you would want to pull a few of those things apart. And that's where impartial needs assessment comes in. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't want to start off the needs analysis process from the presumption that the needs have to be bucketed according to the, the turf of the individual agencies that are pulling all that together. Mm-hmm. And that's how, in practice, it usually works. You would want a needs assessment process that can engage with the population as whole individuals and see their needs holistically. Um, and so something like... Uh, so, for instance,
1: if, if dis- internally displaced populations or host communities yeah. have greater needs than refugees, the money would flow in that direction rather than right. being earmarked at a global level.
2: Right, and, and would try to be consistent... In terms of how it addresses need, rather than being kind of pre-cooked based on the status of the population. Um, it would also then mean that with something like cash, you don't get into these big fights over who should own cash or, or whether cash should be segmented based on mandate. So right now, there is a lot of toing and froing between donors and the big UN agencies over: should cash be unconditional or should cash be, okay, here's your cash because you're hungry, here's your separate cash because you're a refugee, here's your separate cash because you're a child, here's your separate cash because you're otherwise vulnerable. That gets a little bit crazy. And it gets you to these really bizarre situations like we saw in Lebanon a few years ago where there were 30 different cash programs all serving the refugee population. A refugee is not a a hungry person, is not a, a sick person, is not a person in need of protection, they're a person. And we don't have a system that can engage with them as a person. We have a system that is pre-cooked to only engage with them through a kind of predefined set of vulnerabilities. Now, that's a very fragmented way to engage with whole people, but it also means there's blind spots. It means that we don't see things. We also don't listen very well. You know, if, you're, if your incentives as an organization are to go out and find the food needs, um,
0: there's going to be a lot of that. food needs.
2: <laughs> you're going to find a lot of food needs, and there are a lot of food Not needs, of. Um, but you know, your incentive is not necessarily to go out and listen to what people are saying their highest priorities are. And, um, and if their priorities are things that don't fit neatly into the things that we are predisposed to provide, they're kind of out of luck. Who would do the impartial needs assessment? Well, that's one of the really controversial points, and that's one of the, the things that in the the, the negotiations on, under the grand bargain leading up to the, the World Humanitarian Summit, this was the most contentious part of those negotiations because you had you had some people, particularly in the donor community, who thought this needs to be a totally separate and independent process. Needs assessment should not be con- held, conducted at all by the agencies because that inherently compromises it; it removes the check and balance. You had know, the agencies pushing back, and I think they have a valid point here that if they are the ones providing what will follow on from those needs assessments. Um, then they need to be part of that process it can't be fully separated from them and i think that's i think that's a fair i think that's a fair critique you know to my mind we need a degree of coherence in how those things are carried out so that you don't just have each agency going out and hunting down its own needs with its own standards and generating data that can't talk to itself and 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 we saw this when i was working at aid we would try to pull together more comprehensive needs analysis based on the input we got from our grantees, and we couldn't do it because everybody collected information in a different way, and you couldn't get a coherent picture. You start with having a design of needs assessment that can talk to itself across different agencies, and then I think you need a degree of anal- analytical independence, if not assessment independence. So I, I think I think it can work to have agencies go out and pursue needs assessment within their kind of within their rubric, feed that back into a process that is then independently analyzed. And,
0: um, you know, who does that could it's be, feel, it could be I mean, a corporate, feels like you know, a
1: politically convenient answer in a way.
2: It does, it does, but I, there's not, there's not a great way to do that. Well, So, I,
0: so I spent many years in monitoring and evaluation on yeah. big programs yeah. and with the UN agencies and the norm that evolved there was that you just had independent third parties always yeah. evaluate any programs that were sufficiently big right. enough to to warrant that. Right. Right. And that was a norm that I think was hard fought yep. um, in the early days. And, but it has become pretty standard. And now you have a lot of external independent M&E shops, people yep. who do that's this. Right. And I, to me, yeah. it seems like independent needs assessment should actually just follow the same arc where it, it will take time. But I don't, I don't know if there's anything unique about them from M&E. I think, I think that's a good parallel.
2: And, and, and that's, you know, the M&E is another part of the the kind of end-to-end business model that needs to that we need to move past um, having independent E is independent M and is really important to credibility. But one thing that struck me when I was at Aid and, and we would finance a lot of and those, by, inv- and by
1: M and E you mean monitoring, monitoring evaluation.
2: evaluation, yeah, impact evaluation. It's just being me.
0: I just mean um, me. <laughs>
1: um,
2: you know, we also saw it wasn't just a, a matter of accountability. We also saw that it changed the the type of engagement with the the affected population. So. Uh, you know, I remember getting briefed by my team about some findings from the third party monitoring and evaluation that was being done in Somalia. And one of the things that they would find was that people were just so incredibly grateful to be asked what they thought about projects. And, you know, even if they didn't have big complaints, and and often they were quite satisfied with the the services Mm -hmm. they'd received, but they were so pleased to feel engaged and to feel like uh, it, it gave them a bit of a, a more balanced power relationship with the organizations that were, that were supporting them. You know, if you, have a, if you have someone who you know is representative of the organization that's giving you the services, asking you what you think of the services, you don't necessarily have an incentive to be frank and honest. If you have someone coming and asking you that same question, but you know that they're independent, it, it opens the space for more candor. And I, I think that gets to another really fundamental problem with the current business model is it doesn't really empower the voices of affected populations in humanitarian decision-making. That should be what we're all about.
0: I want to pull on something that you said about cash, which is another one of the primary solutions that you put forward in the paper. Cash is amazing because it breaks through the silos. It breaks through the fact that it's not necessarily cash for food, cash for health.
1: And and to speak to what Jeremy was saying before, it's also deeply empowering of the individual.
0: Right, absolutely. But what you're seeing now happen with cash is actually what you were noting, right? Mm -hmm. In Lebanon, there were 35 different cash (laughs) programs. And to me, this begs the question around – that I think about around cash, which is, is cash going to be the thing that pierces through the system? Or is the system, because the structural incentives are so strong, going to be able to absorb it and refract it through itself Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't change it? Mm -hmm. And – I would love to get your thoughts on how cash doesn't actually become a victim of the system, but actually breaks through. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great way to put it.
2: Because if you're going to orient aid towards those people receiving it, then you start from what do they need and how do they need it, and then you work backwards from that. If you're orienting aid towards how is it most conveniently provided, then you start with what's convenient for the providers. And that's that's traditionally where we've been. Um, now, In, in the past, there was less of, there was arguably, uh, less of a disconnect there because, uh, most aid was divided into those buckets already. So you would have, uh, you would have food going as food. You would have education being provided as education. You would have shelter being provided as, as tents or what have you. Um, when you're doing in-kind aid, uh, it's much easier to pre-divide it that way when you're doing cash, you're shifting the power over how that aid is allocated to the people receiving it. Um, and that is in contrast to how these agencies are all set up. These agencies are all set up not to provide holistic support, but to provide a narrow type of support. And cash doesn't work that way. And so uh, there, is, there is kind of this battle for the soul of cash programming now. Will, will it be allowed to kind of be pre-segmented Based on what's convenient for the agencies providing it, or you know will will
1: pre segmented just yeah. say what you mean by that well
2: I, what that means is you know and as as if you're a if you are a a sick hungry refugee child in Lebanon, you'll get uh one cash you know you or maybe you put this all on one card, but you get a certain cash allocation from UNicef because you're a child, you get a certain allocation from h c r because you're a refugee, you get a certain allocation from w f p because you're hungry et cetera et cetera that is not a great way to provide aid, and it's not terribly efficient for the donor. And, you know, donors are rightly asking, what's the value add of segmenting this in advance when I could just go contract an NGO or a private sector entity to do the actual distribution in a holistic way?
1: But that gets at the, the – the, <laughs> my fundamental question when when I look at the, your proposals yeah. is it's actually far more radical than, than – you might care to admit, because the logic is, let's do a needs assessment of what people in the area need. Let's then give them the cash to buy the stuff that they can buy, uh, where you can't just give them cash because it's a public good, mm. then let's provide it. Yep. Um, and therefore, what's the role of all these agencies? That, that's the sort of logic that, that comes out from, from, I think, your argument. And yeah. then you have the question about, well, do you try and propose a revolution like that, mm. or do you try and get to that yep. and stitch it together with the existing yeah. structures. And what I worry about is that then y- your proposals fall down the trap of all the previous reforms of essentially trying to overlay a new system on the underlying structures and incentives and the vested the interests get at it.
0: Ravi's got a
2: pitchfork in his hand. He because, can't see it. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I'm not terribly prescriptive in the paper. I'm a little more prescriptive in my personal views. But you know, the paper is more of an analytical piece saying, look, the question is less should cash do X, Y, and Z? I think it's more. Cash is doing X, Y, and Z. Cash is skewing these incentives. Impartial In needs assessment. Our assessments are changing these incentives. Pooled funds are changing the business kind of the business proposition of the UN agencies, and that's another piece that I talk about. Is um, you know, there are these country-based pooled funds that now exist which allow donors to pool their funding at a country level rather than at an agency level. So if you are a small to mid-sized donor, if a big part of the value add to you of a UN agency is that it gives you a way to program your money with low overhead, well, so do country-based pooled funds, but in ways that are much more responsive to delivery capacity and needs on the ground in that specific context. Um, And so, you know, I think all of these things, and there are other factors too, but these are kind of the big tectonic plates. That whether anyone likes it or not, whether anyone chooses it or not, are, are changing incentive. They're they are disrupting the sector. And, uh, and so I think the question to the UN agencies and to the donors is, do they want to just allow that to go on and they see where it goes? Or do they want to try and manage that in a particular direction? And I think leaving that unmanaged could actually be damaging and, and problematic because what you wouldn't want is to so undermine the business model of the UN agencies that we lose the really important value that they do provide, uh, which, which in particular is this, this advocacy leadership, technical and normative leadership, coordination support. These are all really, really important things where the UN has a comparative advantage. I don't think they necessarily have a comparative advantage at at being an intermediary donor, and that's that's what their business model has traditionally been built on, and that's what some of these things are are now chipping away at.
0: So, take us through the last solution around the country-based pool funds. Yeah, well, so this is this
2: is the whole. You know, if you start from the premise that most donors cannot uh, directly program their money to the to the front providers, some can. In my old office, uh, that was that was our our main way of operating was providing those grants directly to frontline providers. But we also had, um, by the time I left, we had about six hundred people working for us to do that. Most donors cannot build something, nor would you want you, you wouldn't want uh you wouldn't want 10 OFDAs around the world, because I think they'd fight like hell. But it's helpful to have a couple of them. Um for the for those donors who can't build that or wouldn't build that sort of a capacity, the ability to then program their money in large chunks to UN agencies who then you know they rely on for the for the planning and allocation and oversight of that money is is really useful. Country-based pooled funds give many of the same advantages, but in ways that I think are are arguably superior. With a country-based pooled fund, you're not just giving money to an agency at a global level or a regional level and saying we you know we trust you to go and figure out how to program this. It enables a donor to be a little more granular in saying, you know, we see a really solid response plan in this country and we have a lot of confidence in it. We're going to put our money into this pooled fund and we're going to we're going to let the leadership in that country decide how best to allocate it. Um, another difference is it it orients money much more towards delivery capacity than towards mandate. so if you're if you're giving money at a global level to big u n agencies, you know you're not giving a, because you've decided that in country X they are the best place to deliver. You're giving because at a global level their mandate is important. If you're giving at a country level through a country based pooled fund, if those allocations are made by the senior u n official in country based on ideally, the specific configuration and needs, irrespective of mandate, and who's best place to deliver them. And so if if who has best place to deliver against those needs is a local NGO, they will get the money. If it's a UN agency, they will get the money. So you're incentivizing competition not based on importance of mandate, but based on capacity to deliver. And that's, I think, a a better thing to be competing over.
1: And is that what you're seeing in the country-based funds that, that are in operation, a rational allocation of money based on need and capacity, or is that the same usual horse trading?
2: I mean, there's always a bit of horse trading. I, I, you know, from what I've seen and from what I heard in it from my teams when I was still at USAID, and they were generally pretty happy with the way they saw those funds being allocated. But I think what's important to, to recognize is that traditionally those have been small kind of complementary gap-filling instruments, not... The main instruments through which most of the resources flow. So that would be a question and I think something that that bears watching as those things grow because you are seeing donors beginning to, or, to orient um, more funding into those country-based pooled funds. Do those then become just the same old kind of horse trading? Uh, you know, right now, it's a little easier for them to be more impartial on the merits because that's not where most of the money is. So it doesn't gore anyone's ox too much. If, um, if that money is not going to the big UN agencies, because the big UN agencies are still getting their, their
0: predominant funding directly from the donors. As that shifts, it'll be interesting to watch. I want to transition us now to some of the experience that you had while you were running Ofta, which you mm-hmm. mentioned. And one of the major events that you were responsible for coordinating response to was the Ebola crisis in West Africa. What are some of the biggest lessons that you think humanitarians and emergency responders should take away from that? And actually, in particular, I think that I'm curious to get your thoughts on how some of those lessons that people first really embraced have either actually ripened or mm. kind of dissipated over time as other emergencies have happened. Yeah. So
2: one big, big, big lesson is that I think humanitarians need to see public health emergencies as much more in their wheelhouse. And you know, it, it, that was always true to a certain degree for certain diseases. So if there were a cholera outbreak, no one in the humanitarian world would say, oh, that's WHO and CDC's job, that's not ours. They'd jump on that. Um, but things like Ebola, flu, MERS, um, you know some of these other diseases were not really seen as a humanitarian problem. They were seen as a public health problem. And so there was this real segmentation of communities there, and very, very few organizations straddled both. MSF did, and to a very limited extent, IMC and and, and IRC, but to a much more limited extent. And so you didn't have people who understood both of those communities and could actually serve as go-betweens. So there needs to be much more cross-pollination between those communities. And I, I I think that that has begun happening, and that's important. Uh, Another big lesson is there's a very different mentality to how you contain an infectious disease outbreak to what we are used to as a traditional humanitarian response mentality. And this, you know, this was a struggle for me at first. Um, Your traditional humanitarian response, what you're looking to do is not to get to every single person in need. You're generally looking to find who are the 20 to 25% of people who are the worst off, and we want to make sure that they are stabilized. Um, And uh, if you fail to reach the other 75%, it does not spawn millions of more people who are going to be in need. Um, you know, one, um, if you fail to feed a hungry person in a famine, they don't spawn three more hungry people. With an infectious disease, they do. With an infectious disease, every person, every every um, contagious person that you fail to reach will create more contagious people. And um, and so that's a very different fundamental operational principle and goal than I think we are used to in most humanitarian settings, and it it caused some real culture clash at first, and um, and and so that was a that was a a lesson learned for me. Um, and why why was that a culture
1: clash? Because I, I can totally see the the point that historically yeah. um, humanitarian responses might operate at a small scale, and and for all the reasons you mentioned. But why was that such a difficult thing to grasp? Um
2: it wasn't I mean I think it was easy to grasp intuitively it was more difficult to then it was a very different way of operating it changes how you think about burden sharing so in a in a humanitarian response it's okay that you're not reaching everybody because not everybody needs to be reached in the same way and there are others who are involved and so you really focus on doing your patch well in a, in this response you know if we're doing our patch perfectly well here in Liberia but it's not happening in Guinea, then all the success we're having over here could be irrelevant because it could come right back again. Um, So you need to extinguish all needs simultaneously in all places in order to successfully do your job. And that's um, just a different way of thinking and planning. It requires a lot more coordination than we traditionally do in the humanitarian sector. And then, you know, one other lesson that I think applies to Ebola, but I think it applies to a lot of other emergencies, is just it is really difficult to do something that your institutions are not built to do. And so what we found, we found this, CDC found this, you know, OFDA was, was designed to do humanitarian relief responses. CDC was designed to do really excellent public health and epidemiology work. Ebola was not exactly either of those things, and it was a hybrid between them that made it hard for us to, to look at what we were doing and say, okay, this isn't good enough. And I really credit the White House with pushing us on that, because there is a tendency in, in large bureaucracies to do a really good job at the thing that you're built to do. You know, that's how you get to excellence at scale. But it also means you have a hard- you can have a hard time seeing beyond what you were built to do. And I see this, you know, I see this in FEMA's response in Puerto Rico you know, what FEMA did in Puerto Rico was attempt to apply the same toolkit that worked really, really well in Texas and Florida. And it didn't apply well in Puerto Rico. And on Ebola, I would get pushed by the White House. And I would say, look, my team is doing everything they can. They're working flat out. We're doing everything we know how to do. And the White House would push back and say, that may well be, but that's not good enough because the job's not getting done. And, um, you know, there are times when you're riding a bike, but what you need to be do is getting on, the, getting in a car. And no matter how hard you pedal, you're not going to get where you need to go. And I think that that's a really hard thing for a bureaucracy to do, to understand the scope of the problem beyond what they're built for.
0: So I think one of the interesting things about the Ebola response is actually the deployment of a set of unusual actors that you yeah. wouldn't normally see. Not only off to CDC, the U.S. The US military <laughs> yeah. gets involved. And one thing that I could see that doing organizationally is it just actually brings new lenses that one agency wouldn't see. Should the mode of response, given your experience there, be any time a, a, a pandemic or disaster that's you know then is more than one organization can really think to do? Like actually, what you need to do is bring in multiple different agencies because that's going to inject the different type of expertise.s It does. It's it's a you know it's a question of. I mean, who you bring in needs
2: to flow from what do you need to achieve, right? Um, you don't need to bring in the military on every ebola response. what i what I think is really vexing and challenging
1: uh, wasn't the military brought in as much because they had resources uh, rather than expertise?
2: It was, yeah, it was partly that. I mean, the military had initially had funding when no one else did. But it was also that, There was a large logistical job that needed to be done in setting up supply lines and building out this this army of uh, Ebola treatment units, these small hospitals, highly rigorous small hospitals that needed to be built to properly isolate Ebola patients. And the military could just mobilize at a scale that is hard to find anywhere else. You know, it's also important to recognize, in retrospect, it looks like, oh, you know, the NGOs showed up, the UN showed up, why did the military need to come? That's not how it felt in August and September. I went out to Liberia along with uh, the CDC director, Tom Frieden, at the end of August, right when things were really at the peak in Liberia. And the UN agencies were not stepping up. Most of the NGOs were not stepping up. A lot of NGOs were actually heading out of the country. We were legitimately unsure whether we would be able to rely on traditional humanitarian partners to show up and do the job. And so the military was a bit an insurance policy, too, (laughs) that at least if we had the military there, we knew we would have a way to get some of these things built. We knew we would have a way to contract some of the services we might need for operating them. Now, in the end, NGOs built a number of those and NGOs and groups we contracted operated all of them. We didn't need to turn to the military for that, but we didn't know that in September. And if we had had to figure out who, which civilian actors we would go to right from the beginning before we could undertake any of those things, we would have, we would have lost a couple of months. So, so sending the military out enabled us to steam forward with the plan, knowing that they were there as sort of our ace in the hole if our traditional civilian partners, for whatever reason, didn't show up.
0: You brought up, I think, one thing that has retrospectively remained a little controversial around mm-hmm. the emergency treatment units. Yes. I think at the beginning of the response, right, that reactions. There's no medical infrastructure. There's no place to treat these people. You need to set that up. Yeah. And then there's a delay in how long that takes. Yeah. And by the time they actually get set up, they serve very few people. Yeah. And 2020 hindsight, it looks like, why didn't you invest in reshaping cultural norms? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you invest in local community response? All of these mm-hmm. other things. In retrospect, how do you think about the investment in emergency treatment units. And and more importantly, when you look at kind of future pandemics or emergency responses, what do you think the lessons there are for the types of investments that actually take a few months to convert into things that are then going to serve people? Yeah.
2: That is, I think, one of the key questions coming out of Ebola is, you know, in part what worked? Because we threw everything at the wall at once. Um, So which of those things worked? And how does that apply to a future disease that's going to behave differently? You know, Ebola is unlikely to do again what it did in West Africa, although the, the current outbreak in Congo, uh, in Eastern Congo, does make me pretty nervous. What we saw with Ebola across the three countries in West Africa, the strategies played out a little differently in each setting. So in Liberia, I think we were, we were both lucky and good. And um, we were good And that I think we executed, once we really got underway, we executed very well. But we were lucky in that some of the interventions that were the most rapidly scalable also paid off. And by that, I mean burial teams and I mean behavior change uh, communication. By the time the Ebola treatment units began opening at scale in Liberia, case counts were already way down Mm -hmm. and and the spread was already way down. And so, as you say, most of them um, saw few if any patients by the time they opened their doors. Which you know was a great problem to have. I would much rather have that problem than its inverse. We saw a very different thing play out in Sierra Leone. In Sierra Leone, and I would I would talk to my my UK counterpart on a weekly basis to exchange notes and and swap strategies and talk about what was working and what wasn't. You know, the UK was following much of the play much of the US playbook in Sierra Leone and and applying a, a lot of the same tools. And what we found is it didn't play out the same way there. So they did ultimately need to rely much more heavily on these Ebola treatment units because the behavior change did not happen in the same way in Sierra Leone. Uh, people were much more resistant to the safe burial teams in Sierra Leone. Um, there was much more mistrust of some of the, um, the 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 behavior risk communication messaging. It remains a bit of a mystery why that happened, but it happened. Um, I suspect it's partly that the, the ethnic composition, the religious composition was different in Sierra Leone. You had a much more, a much higher Muslim proportion of population and there, um, they were, they tended to be more resistant to the, the safe burial rituals than, uh, the Christian pop, the predominantly Christian population was in Liberia. Um, Liberia, that July, August period had been such a visceral shock that I think there was more willingness amongst the population to, to contemplate changes to behavior that were really, really jarring and culturally um, you know, culturally problematic. In Sierra Leone, um, it was more of a slow build. And so they didn't have that big flash that I think drove awareness and, and willingness to change behavior. And, and, and in Guinea, you saw some a kind of similar dynamics to Sierra Leone, but on a smaller scale. And so with that, you know, what, what, what I take from that in retrospect is actually we were wise to continue building those clinics in Liberia. Because we didn't know in October mm-hmm. if we would be in a Liberia. We didn't know there would be a Liberia scenario and a Sierra Leone scenario. and We didn't know which one we would be on. And so we presumed, and I think rightly, that would play out as it ultimately did play out in Sierra Leone.
0: When you look at the Ebola epidemic in the Democratic Republic of Congo um, that's Shutter. happening right now, um, primarily it's, it's reemerged in North Kivu, which is a region affected by severe conflict. Yeah. What are you concerned about? Oh boy, a lot. Well, I, are you glad you're not on your old
1: job.
2: That's a complicated question. <laughs> um, you know, there are there are days when I would love to be in it. Um, and, and one of the best things about that job was the team I got to work with and and the solidarity and the, and the team point together in this kind of a tough crisis and I do miss that. But I don't miss the time it took. Um, when I look at the situation in in North Kivu, what's so unique about that is there has never been uh, a major Ebola outbreak in a in a hot conflict zone in quite that way. So you know there have been there have been time, there was an outbreak in in Yambio in South Sudan like in the early 2000s there was an outbreak in Gulu in, in Uganda when there was some unrest there but North Kivu is really an epicenter of conflict it has been it was actually declared a, a UN level 3 emergency for most of the past year because the conflict had gotten so bad there. Um so this is this is really just a very different nature. This is not just instability. This is this is outright conflict, large-scale displacement, very mobile, very fluid populations. That introduces a level of complexity that we did not have in the West Africa Ebola outbreak. And I often thought to myself during that outbreak at least at least it's not a conflict mm-hmm. zone. Because we would have had to approach things fundamentally differently in a conflict zone. CDC right. had their disease detectives uh, going all over West Africa, out into the farthest reaches of the deepest, you know, the the deepest and most remote communities, to find cases, to educate people, to monitor contacts, and that was really, really important. That was fundamental to success. You can't do that in Eastern Congo. You can't be sending uh, CDC doctors unescorted in a canoe up a river to visit a remote community. You just can't do it. So there is a whole operational security overlay. That is going to, I, I fear, dramatically crimp the agility of the response uh, and the reach of the response in a way we have not seen in other in other Ebola outbreaks. Um, you know that ability to reach every community, that ability to actively hunt down cases um, and and look at chains of transmission, identify the contacts monitor the contacts so that when symptoms emerge, you can isolate someone quickly and prevent them from spreading it to others. All of that depends on mobility. And when you don't have that safe mobility, it makes everything much, much harder. Um, Another big fear is there is a huge amount of displacement on an ongoing basis in that part of Eastern Congo. And so you've got people moving to other parts of Eastern Congo. You've got people going across the border into Uganda. And, you know, this is a disease that can sit latent for 21 days before it manifests symptoms. So it's entirely possible that you could have someone become infected and be unaware of that, go to another location, infect people there. Um, uh, and the number of cases we're seeing so far, I think um, it's its uh, the latest numbers are something like 43. Uh, and and that's risen very dramatically just in the last few days. That suggests this has been out in the environment for some time already. And, and a degree of that moving around is already going on. And that's really concerning because that is exactly what we saw in West Africa. The disease was able to circulate undetected, which allowed it to get entrenched in a way that it had not in the early the outbreak earlier this year.
1: Jeremy Conondate, thank you so much for being on Displaced.
2: My pleasure. Great to be with you.
1: Thanks for listening. Our team at the IRC is Alex Bandea, Catherine Long and Ben Moskowitz.
0: And a huge thank you to everybody at Vox Media. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. Golda Arthur is our senior producer. And Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio at Vox Media. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer.
1: Do get in touch with us and give us any feedback and suggestions on who we should
0: have on the show at displaced at rescue.org. We'd love to hear from you. Literally send us anything.
1: And subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We put up show notes at www.rescue.org forward slash displaced. Check them out.
1: See you next week and thanks for listening.